Today on this virtual platform this evening, we acknowledge that these lands are the ancestral and unceded territories of all the Inuit, Métis, and First Nations people. Understanding that a land acknowledgement is only a starting point, we urge you to support Indigenous organizations and Indigenous grassroots changemakers and campaigns. I myself am, lo uh, am located on what is now called Prince Edward Island, uh, the traditional and unceded territory of the Mi'kmaq peoples. Um, so to continue this conversation this evening, um, some of you may have been a part of our previous session on the COVID-19 results in uh, the counties of Huron and Perth. Um, I guess to continue and contextualize that into what's happening these days um, on the ground in the medical profession, we have a number of individuals joining us uh, uh, to share some of their personal stories. Um, and to kick that off, I'll, I'd like to uh, welcome Gwen Devereaux to, uh, to uh, join us and to give an introduction about the wonderful presentation that we're going to hear this evening. Over to you. Well, thank you very much. I am thrilled to be uh, your moderator this evening. My name is Gwen Devereaux. Um, a little bit about me is um, a longtime nurse, a uh, president of Gateway Center of Excellence in Rural Health. And um, I live here in Huron County in Southwestern Ontario. And I love to say, uh, I walk the beautiful sandy shorelines of um, our Great Lake, but uh, we've had some serious water level issues. So not watch, walking those sandy shores as much as usual. But I uh, want to thank Peter for bringing this conference to us and for bringing us to this conference. Um, he's a great recruiter and uh, I have learned so much already at uh, attending the sessions and we're not even halfway through. So um, I'm, I thank all of you for joining us this evening. And I hope that all of my people will come on now um, on the screen. And I'm going to ask them to introduce themselves and um, maybe tell us a little bit about where you are in what community and what you do in, uh, in that community. And I wanna thank all of you right up front for sharing tonight and sharing your, uh, this very important time together. So I am going to start with you, uh, Dr. Chris Patey, and if you would um, tell us uh, about yourself, where you are and what's happening. Certainly, yeah. So I'm a family doc, emergency doctor, and I uh, had my feet wet in Godrich, Ontario, by the way. So, but uh, then moved to Carbonier, Newfoundland. Uh, and there I've practiced for the last 12, 13 years and uh, work in a rural emergency department and a small family practice there. Uh, and I love Newfoundland and I uh, love the rural components there. Wonderful. Um, and so, Dr. Amy Hendricks. Please tell us about you. My name is Amy Hendricks. I met Gwen when she was um, thinking of recruiting me to Ontario 18 years ago, but instead I went up to Yellowknife where I worked as a, a general internal medicine specialist for 14 years. And four and a half years ago, I moved to rural Nova Scotia where I live in Antigonish. Um, it's, uh, I, a change and yet not a change from uh, from rural from remote medicine in the Northwest Territories. And I just have to tell you, I was up in Yellowknife because my doc daughter uh, worked in Yellowknife, and I was still trying. 
to recruit Amy when I was up there. It just never ended. But uh, Nova Scotia is lucky enough to have you for sure. Brittany. Hi, everybody. Uh, my name is Brittany Hamilton. I uh, work in Goderich. I work at a retirement home there. Um, I'm the general manager at a retirement home in Goderich. So, um, yeah, we've certainly had our challenges with COVID, as we'll hear about later. And Brittany, how big is your home and what is your uh, expansion happening? Uh, we have 106 residents. Um, so it is a, a pretty good sized home, about 50, 50 to 60 staff. Um, so um, yeah, it's a good size home. It's a good size home. And also um, Brittany uh, is going off on maternity leave tomorrow, right, Brittany? So we're next Friday. very, <laughs> ah, next. So thank you so much for being here. Dr. Devin. Thanks. And thanks for the invitation uh, tonight as well. So I'm, I'm Brian Devon. I'm a family physician um, and I do about half-time hospital medicine as well. I, do, uh, I did emergency medicine long ago when I was a young lad um, and I do uh, inpatient care and surgical assisting now. Um, so my office practice is just outside the southern edge of Ottawa um, and the hospital I work at is uh, in Winchester, which is a, a rural community about 45 minutes or so south of in Ottawa. Um, so the hospital has about 50 beds. Uh, the community itself has about 3,500 people and it's, uh, it's mostly rural agricultural, predominantly dairy and uh, feed cropping. Beautiful area for sure um, in Eastern Ontario. So what we're going to do now is talk a little bit about personal, professional um, effects of COVID and you know, I have asked that everyone just jumps in if they have a comment to make. So this, I am going to give uh, the first few minutes to Amy to speak to us about um, what's, what's happening with you and how is COVID affecting you and how affecting your practice. Thank you, Gwen. So my coronavirus story actually starts on February 2nd, 2019. That is the date that my husband was very suddenly diagnosed with metastatic colon cancer. And in the wake of that diagnosis, I decided to do something that was a little bit crazy. There was a piece of land that we had looked at a couple of years before that he never stopped talking about a 45 acre property about half an hour from our home. And I realized it was on the market again. And I phoned up a realtor that I knew and I said, I need to buy that old farm because Paul needs to have something to look forward to after, after liver and, uh, and colon surgery in Halifax. So I bought it and uh, he spent the next weekend sort of looking at me and saying, every five minutes or so how wonderful I was. And, and we loved the place and we got out to it when we could, but it was a busy time. He was going through chemotherapy. I had to be the soccer mom, uh, taking the kids to various activities. I was involved in a lot of musical projects, accompanying a choir. And then of course there's work, which is usually um, in the range of, of 80 hours per week as a community internist. When COVID hit us, suddenly we realized that all we really had to look forward to for several months was each other. 
And the only place that we could go was out to the country to that, um, that beautiful piece of property at Arnos. So that I realized, well, if Paul's gonna be out there, he'll, he'll need something to play with, um, like, like a tractor. And that was uh, the next item on the agenda. <laughs> and uh, we, we named her Big Susie, that's the name of the tractor. And, and we found ourselves going out there more and more. And after a few months of this, realizing that I was not going to get to conferences, we were not going to get up to Yellowknife, we were certainly not going to get to Europe anytime soon. After several months of just really going out to, to our place in Ardness, I turned to Paul one day and I said, um, you know, Paris can stay where it is. I'm ready to lose my passport and never take it out again. I think I've learned from what my, parent, my patients often say to me when I apologize for being late in the office, they say, that's okay, doc. I got nowhere to go and all day to get there. <laughs> and I suddenly realized that, uh, or I guess I should say I more gradually realized that that is something to aspire to and something that I could imagine living as my philosophy to some extent now, but to a much greater extent as we, as we grow old, as I move uh, towards later in my career, um, and as, uh, as hopefully one day we welcome in-laws and grandchildren and that sort of thing into our family. So we have, um, we've uh, become experts in apple baseball, which I think you can imagine what that involves, a, a row of uh, boys under the age of 14 lined up in front of me. And we, we hadn't realized when we bought the property that we actually have hundreds and hundreds of apple trees. They all taste different. They, uh, we have no idea what they are. Many of them are well over a hundred years old, I'm pretty sure. And the only way we can keep them straight, if Paul's going off on his tractor in one direction and I'm staying up by the house and pruning some trees somewhere else, the only way we can keep them straight is if we name the trees. So I have been naming the apple trees after my favorite patients. One of them is, um, I have this wonderful, uh, former lobster fisherman in my practice who had a couple of cardiac arrests, ended up with a, a pacemaker, then a defibrillator. He refuses to drive to Halifax, so I check his defibrillator since he won't go and see the experts. Um, I'm qualified to do it, but he, uh, he said in no uncertain terms that I'm his doc and that's how it's gonna be. So, so I, I was looking through the, I was sort of going down a path into this grove of trees and suddenly I saw this enormous, beautiful tree reaching out all of its branches covered with apples, looking like it had been there absolutely forever. And I looked at that tree and I said, that is Sylvester. So it's, uh, so we have Sylvester's Grove. We have Amaya's Grove uh, named after one of my Inuit patients. We have Bella named after a Filipino lady that I knew in, in, uh, in Yellowknife. And we have um, found that they actually make really, really good friends, especially during times of social distancing. So whether it's apple baseball or uh, taking the tractor through the brush, or um, we, built a, we built a bridge over the creek with pieces of a barn that fell over. And then to go along with it, I, I made a picnic table with other pieces of the old barn. And we've realized that it's, it's actually, um, it's okay to just have each other and it's okay to just be outside and simply learn again to play. 
So that has been, that's been our COVID story. Um, not, it has nothing to do with the disease, just with the uh, really a coming home and a coming home to the philosophy that my patients have been showing me for the last four years. That in a lot of ways I was pulled away from by, by all the demands of life. Wow, Amy, I have to say, look out other panelists, how are you gonna top that one? <laughs> That was beautiful and, uh, and just lovely. Um, oh, wow. Um, Dr. Devin, I'm going to ask you to try to top Amy's story. Uh, the competition now, it, there's a prize, so please. I, I'm, I'm done. <laughs> <laughs> Although it's, it's, it's kind of interesting, Amy, there's, there's some interesting parallels. Um, I started life as a, a city person, and then I was a military medical officer for a few years, so I ended up getting posted rural. Uh, interesting enough, I worked in Ottawa for a year, but we bought a rural property, um, and then from there I got posted up to Petawawa. So again, we lived in the, in the country outside of the not-so-big towns of Petawawa and Pembroke. So we've lived rural for about the last 25 years after both coming from an urban background. Um, when I started work down here at the hospital, um, we circled out and eventually we actually found a 30 acre piece of land that we really liked and could afford. And it's got old apple trees on it that we stumbled across as we were clearing the land. So the, the, the parallels are kind of interesting. Um, my wife went through some significant health problems probably, probably six or eight years ago now. Um, and when she came out the other side of those, she had talked for years about beekeeping and she said, so, you know, those bees and I went, uh-huh. She goes, we're getting bees. Okay. What do I need to do? Build me stands and frames and supports for the bees. Okay. But six weeks later, she goes, and chickens. We need chickens. <laughs> All right, what do I need to do? Build me a chicken coop. Okay. So we took the, the bus shelter that my son never used in 10 years, and I put it on the trailer and dragged it around, turned it into a chicken coop. Um, and then about six months after that, we got ducks. So so the interesting thing is we we tend to find our, our little piece of land as a, a bit of a a bit of a haven from the world anyway. So I chuckled when, when COVID happened and the lockdown happened and they said, go home and stay home. I'm like, okay, I don't go out anyways. This is great. Cause I do the same thing. I go home and I get on my tractor and I knock down trees for recreation. So it's, it's, it's a funny parallel. Um, I have not so much a particular story as I do a sense of what some of the impacts of COVID reminded me of. Um, so my first real real exposure to the qualities that really get manifest by people who live in rural areas and smaller populations, smaller communities, was when I was at the military. Um, about I was looking at the stats today, about 8,000 of us shipped from all over Canada to Winnipeg when they had the floods back in 1997. We, the, uh, the unit I was with ended up in Selkirk, a little bit north of Winnipeg. And as luck often happens in big logistical things, things went missing. So we pulled in and we had no, no uh, the refrigerator truck with all of the, the cold produce and the meat and everything had gone missing. It was supposed to meet us and didn't show up. The local townsfolk came by and they were saying, hi, thanks for coming. We really like you being here. And they happened to find, and this is anecdotal, so this is what I was told. They happened to bump into a number of our cooks who were going to who were not looking forward to telling the soldiers they were all gonna to have to eat rations. So the local folks said, well, what can we do for you? We're there to help them and they come and ask us what they can do to help. 
So our grumbly cook said, well, if you know any place we can get meat, that would be great. About a half an hour later, a pickup truck showed up with about 200 pounds of assorted venison and a cooler full of pies. And they said, well, hopefully this will make a dent in it. We ate really well that night. So it's, you know, the folks we were there to help turned around and came out and helped us. When COVID landed, um, I was struck by the immediacy of purpose of everybody. You know, we had a number of people in the hospital who were supposed to be going off on vacation. You know, they could probably have gotten away for vacation and the majority of, uh, the majority of folks canceled and said, no, I'm needed here. So they showed up. Um, and within a few days, the town and the communities around us started to rally around. So I think everyone remembers in the early, the early time for this, we were having some shortages for our protective equipment two or three organizations in the community said, hey, we have 3D printers, we're gonna make you face masks. So they started turning out hundreds of face masks over the first couple of weeks to end up supplying the shortfall in the hospital. Um, we had enough people phoning the hospital and knocking on our doors, wanting to bring food and coffee that we actually had to have one of our admin staff start to keep a list in terms of, no, no, Tuesday afternoon would be great for coffee. So that the, while we were busy preparing, the community was busy supporting us. Um, because they have that, they have that sense of unity and that and that sense of purpose that we were all going in one direction, and even within the hospital, I, I, I'm sure everybody's been in the same the same position. Is when all this changed. My sense of it, looking back, is everybody put their arm on their desk, swept everything off the side of their desk, and said, "Okay, what do we have to do to get ready for this?" Everything else in hospital operations took a took a side seat and a back seat. Um, you know, I have colleagues who, amongst them, we have probably 25 or 28 active, active family physicians at the hospital, a couple of internists, a handful of general surgeons. There are hundreds and hundreds of hours of time that people devoted to trying to prepare our little hospital, not only to take care of our community, but to be ready to take care of overflow from Ottawa, because we were worried they were going to get crushed. So, and, and nobody grumbled. Everybody closed together. Um, we had weekly gratitude meals hosted by the hospital for hospital staff so that once a week people would have a lunch or a supper. Um, and that was again supported, you know, sponsored by the hospital, supported by the community. It, those episodes from my past, those feel very unique to a rural environment and coming from having spent my education and my sort of my early years in large cities, you don't get that feel. So that, that sense of shared ownership, shared direction, um, and everybody knows each other. It's interesting working in a small hospital. If um, I'm the chief of staff here at the hospital, people have no problem telling me if they disagree with the decision I've made. Because <laughs> they know me, right? Um, and that's, and it's nice because my colleagues work in some of the bigger facilities don't necessarily know all of their teams and all of their staff. So I'm, I'm, I'm so appreciative of being able to work in a place like this. And at the same time, I'm appreciative to being in an area where we've been relatively safe. You know, my wife has been able to stay safe. My son's been able to stay safe. So, you know, I, I feel quite blessed by this environment. So what you're saying is gratitude, rural Absolutely. gratitude in a nutshell. Oh, that's wonderful. So, um, Brittany, I'm quite sure managing a large retirement home and um, the stress in that area uh, 
Can you tell us a little bit about how you're feeling and how you're coping? Sorry, I just realized I didn't have my mic on. Uh, so yes, for sure. Um, there's been uh, a lot of really challenging times. Um, definitely uh, staffing challenges, I'd say, is one of our biggest challenges. Um, resident uh, issues, um, definitely uh, the social isolation that residents have been feeling. Um, it's been affecting their mental health. Um, and uh, that's definitely one of the hardest things that, uh, that we've been working through at our home. Um, when, the, when, the, when COVID first started, we basically went into outbreak mode for two months, um, two and a half, three months actually, uh, and residents were isolated to their rooms. Um, we delivered all the meals up to their rooms they had basically no interaction with each other, with anybody but the staff going into their rooms um, with, their, with their families, of course. So basically we, we had to try to come up with creative ways to help them to um, be, ha work on their mental health and, and be involved. And so, you know, we started doing hallway activities and um, had got iPads and they started talking with their families on the iPads. Um, definitely now, nowadays, I agree with Brian, we're very lucky to live where we are too. Um, and definitely we have a lot of gratitude for living in an area that is relatively safe. Um, as I was just saying to you before the session started though, Gwen, we did just find out today that we're going to be moving into the orange alert um, category tomorrow, which is more strict than um, yellow, which we're currently in. So these same types of isolation protocols are coming into place now. Residents are, are no longer allowed to go out anymore into the public unless it's for an emergency like medical appointment. Um, can't see their family members, of course, no more visiting hours, um, not even window visits anymore like they could have earlier in COVID times. So we're starting to see um, or will be seeing more of those mental health type issues coming into effect with our residents, which is very concerning to us. So the staff are really pulling together to try to come up with um, uh, creative ways that we can keep them involved and, um, and uh, well, I suppose. Uh, we did see so many residents decline in the first couple of months when COVID first started. Um, their health, their overall health um, definitely, uh, definitely declined so many of them um, from the social isolation. So we're working very hard to work as a team and our, our work family to, um, to keep them busy and entertained and um, while they can't see their families. And it's, it's very challenging for sure. And very challenging for the staff to deal with this as well. And their morale must, it must be, you know, this holding pattern of eight months is really must be very difficult for you and your staff. For sure. It's, it's been a really long time. It's, you know, thinking back from when COVID first started, I remember 
us all thinking, oh my gosh, they're saying this could last till the summer. That's, you know, three or four months of this. And now it's obviously almost December and it's basically the worst that it's been so far. Um, and it's, it's the fear of the unknown, not knowing when it's going to end. And um, for sure, it's very challenging. Um, as I mentioned, staffing, uh, staffing challenges, we've had so many staff, well, with all the directives from the ministry, you know, staff can only choose one facility to work in. Um, they can't even be like a home care nurse out in the public and work at our facility. So we've lost so many staff. Um, we still struggle with hiring, um, with, uh, retaining staff that we have, um, so we often do have to work short. Uh, our staff are, are basically working off their feet for sure. Um, we're very, very lucky to have the staff that we do, but staffing is definitely a really large problem. Um, and so for sure the, the morale is low, could be higher for sure. Um, it, it's been challenging. Wow. Thank you, Brittany. That's, um, we hear you and we understand and we're hearing lots, lots of this. And uh, I, I can only imagine, and like you say, it's ongoing. We don't know when this is gonna end and that uncertainty is so difficult. Yeah, for sure. Thank you. Dr. Patey. Certainly, hello there. Yes. Uh, so I guess, um, Gwen, I guess I'll continue on in the same phase. Uh, I'll go back to chickens. I love chickens. Oh, chickens, okay. Yes. Chickens, I love chickens. So in Newfoundland, uh, chickens are not quite as common as you find in Southern Ontario. And during COVID, we had very quiet streets. So my chickens found it really easy to get to the side of the road and find the good worms where all the leaves were hanging out. So they've really found their good perch by the side of the road. And because there wasn't much traffic, it was great. They went left every morning from the chicken coop. They went down to the side of the road. They hung out, maybe a few cars passed. But as COVID started to build, my chickens have got their own Twitter feed now and they've made the news and there's people telling me I'm not controlling my chickens because they're beside the side of the road. So they, because, so in the same regard, as an emergency physician, I work in a pretty tight, very close emergency setting. I have 12 colleagues and being the old guy in the blocks, I've hired majority of physicians who've come through in my practice or, or working with. So they call me OMP which is short for old man Patey. And I accept that, uh, I accept being called old man Patey. Um, but during COVID, uh, we being a rural emergency department, uh, a lot of external mandates of what you need to do despite no COVID. Um, so we found ourselves in positions of having making decisions that we felt weren't correct, but yet external organizations, external departments, tertiary departments were saying we had to run things certain ways that they, felt was best in rural centers because they were done in, in tertiary centers. Uh, and I will factor in the idea of burnout and the idea that, you know, we, we are made to do a lot of things that not necessarily are the correct things. Uh, and at that time, I had been the clinical chief of this merge department for 12 years. I had mentored, I had filtered some people into that position. And I finally had said, you know what, enough's enough. I cannot make decisions in a rural emergency department that I find are incorrect for patients, for staff, um, for the true flow of how our department works. And I mean, we have a fantastic run department uh, with a wait time of 28 minutes and left of it being seen of almost 2%. So with the high volumes. 
Uh, and, and I sort of said, okay, I've walked someone in there. I'll let them have it. I'll stay back and I'll support that individual as the next clinical chief, which was terribly hard. I predicted I'd probably be clinical chief there for 30 years. Um, and what I found when I walked away is that I had more chickens. And I think the opportunity walking away from leading a department as opposed to supporting my colleagues was terribly important. So that burnout we see on the front lines now is real. And I have my herd of chickens, the young docs who I work with now, who is my opportunity now that, you know what, I may not be saying what needs to be done in this department now, but because we're rural, because I know them, because I know their family, I know how they feel. I see them on a daily basis and I know there's something not quite right with that doctor. I'm the mentor now. I think that's the role that I've stepped into to say, you know what, a true mentor and a true supportive and colleague in that department to make sure that we get through this uh, quite effectively. And and everyone gets through it because there is it, there is that feel there. So I think the more we corral our chickens and our people in rural communities, and I think the support we've all mentioned is crucial. Uh, and uh, I've only that's only a process that's developed since COVID. Um, so for me, it really has shown that maybe some of the roles we've played are maybe not so important anymore. But we need to really step up and, and step for those people in the front lines that you know are suffering with the high volumes. And that says nothing to patients and the patients, we have no COVID in Newfoundland and yet we're doing things that really impact all care going forward. So uh, I think it's good for us to step forward, make those right decisions and support the people with us. Wow, these stories are amazing. I love this, um, while you're busy preparing, you know, the community, I think you said, uh, Dr. Devin was busy caring and but as healthcare professionals and, and what you're working on, you are all busy um, preparing and you are busy caring. And so I have to say um, in the last few minutes that we have left, can, can you maybe speak to, um, to what you feel um, like right now going forward, what you need personally, um, and where you're getting your strength. And maybe back to you, Amy, on that. I have an idea, it's from your trees. Well, you're a tree I, hugger now, Amy, I'm <laughs> sure you're a tree hugger. So I, I didn't really speak as a physician, but uh, as a general internist, most of, probably a third of what I do is inpatient work and the other two thirds is uh, outpatient. When we were no longer able to see patients in the office and we switched to virtual care, my secretary sat down and immediately phoned every single patient who was booked and said, Dr. Hendricks will call you at your appointment time. Nothing is canceled. Check your blood pressure three times before you talk with her, get a weight and have all your pills in front of the phone. Wow. And there was, go so my productivity on the outpatient side actually increased. My wait lists went down because I started booking clinics at times that normally I would not be seeing patients. And I went by the weather forecast. If it was going to be too hot to be in the country or if it was going to rain, I would book four hours of clinic on a, on a Sunday evening or a Saturday afternoon and started ripping through the wait lists. And what I found was that people were so grateful to be able to speak with a physician and actually get some kind of care. Um, and I, I really, I, I did not feel that there was a recognition that my work in keeping patients with heart disease safe and healthy 
was just as important as the work that was being that was going on for for um, COVID readiness in the hospital, and really the the task of keeping people well at home so that they are not in the emergency room is an enormous one, and I. I felt that I was uniquely equipped for that, having worked so much in the North where 40% of my care was already virtual. I came to Nova Scotia, there was no fee code for it. I did it anyway until the fee code was brought in. And I've recognized that my secretary books my phone follow-ups in usual days when her kids have dance recitals or swimming lessons so that she doesn't have to be in the office. So we have always done virtual care. And I think for me, the, the patient gratitude and that feeling that what I could do has actually been done very well with a high regard for patient safety and for their, their need to not feel abandoned, that is something that, that has propelled me. If all I had was the hospital work, I would have sunk. But it's the outpatient practice, even in the absence of seeing people face to face that really kept me going. The other thing is that I owe Nova Scotians a tremendous uh, debt of gratitude. They stayed home. Our cases went low enough that we could continue cancer surgery. And when my husband had a recurrence in his liver, he had his surgery within a month. So that is, again, a recognition that we are all connected. And it's because my patients worked hard that my husband had the care that he needed. Wow. That is wonderful. Dr. Devin. It's, it's, it's an amazing shift in terms of what you were able to pivot and do, Amy. Um, in, in Ontario, the technology, the technology shift and pivot, similarly in terms of outpatient care, um, it's something that family physicians, I think nationally, but certainly in Ontario, have been asking for for probably 15 years, is that opportunity to say, look, we can extend our reach and make life better for patients in terms of extending care to them more on their terms and consistently were blocked by the ministry and then almost literally overnight certainly within the space of about a week or 10 days virtual care exploded onto the scene in Ontario um, and, and I agree with you it's actually increased community practice efficiency in terms of the ability to reach out because I always feel bad with somebody sitting in my waiting room 40 minutes for a 10 minute visit to follow up on something. Now I phone somebody and apologize for being late. And I had a patient a few weeks ago say, oh, no, no, it's fine. I did laundry, I made muffins, it's all good. Uh, <laughs> I still feel bad, but not as bad. Um, the, the thing I've noticed within healthcare, and I'm sure Brittany is feeling it, and I think Christopher spoke to it as well, is that sense of the walls closing in a little bit and that, that sense of pressure and isolation and fatigue that's come in. Um, and at our medical staff meeting about a week ago, I, uh, a few people mentioned it, and I, had, I was speaking later in the agenda, and I asked people to have a little bit of grace and provide a little bit of space for each other. Because um, I've had one or two, certainly interactions with a few colleagues where they were feeling like I had been more brusque and more gruff than previous. And I'm like, no, I think, well, maybe, maybe I'm sorry. Um, but I've received a few, a few emails from other colleagues very, very hurt about interactions with other colleagues. Um, I think as this goes on, people get fatigued. And as we get fatigued, our sensitivity goes up. Um, I can only imagine how the patients must be feeling. I mean, you're in your environment, Brittany, where patients all of a sudden have had most of their external connections or many of them removed, except for the, the connections with you guys. 
Um, so with our with staff, it's grace and space. I think we need to extend that with our patients as well and just continue to make room for each other. Brittany, um, I what do you need to keep on going? Like what what are you feeling? Um, I, I don't really know how to answer that, to tell you the truth. Um, uh, certainly, th those iPads that you actually helped us get, Gwen, um, from that program have been amazing for us and will be over the next couple weeks or months as well, now that we are back into where we were months ago, unfortunately, where residents cannot go out of the home and visitors cannot come in the home, especially with the um, holidays coming up. It's going to be really challenging times um, for our residents. And honestly, having those iPads, like so many of our, of our residents don't have that kind of thing. So getting those from that program, Gwen, was so fantastic for us. Residents can um, you know, Zoom and FaceTime with their loved ones. And that's basically how um, they've been connecting with family or were early for the early months of COVID. And now certainly upcoming again, that's going to um, be, uh, be really important for us to be using those um, as tools for them to, to keep that contact with family. Um, Another thing that we had done that we're definitely going to have to bring back again, um, we had um, hooked all of our residents up who wanted to be with um, phone buddies. So um, every single day, these volunteers um, were phone buddies for our residents and called them just to say, how's it going? How's the weather? You know, um, to keep them socially engaged. Our our staff are, of course, doing all that they can. But as I mentioned, you know, we have 105 residents and, you know, 20 staff on at a time type thing. We just there's no way we can can spend a whole lot of time with the with the residents, unfortunately. So um, so the the iPads and being able to hook them up with that to be able to to interact with their families has been wonderful. And, uh, and we'll certainly try to start this phone buddy list again. But, um, but yep, there's going to definitely be a lot of challenges coming up in the next couple of weeks for us. Just speaking to that um, program. So we had a local girl uh, who has done extremely well. And so um, her foundation reached out to Gateway and asked, uh, what could we do to bring COVID funding into your area? And when you talked, uh, Dr. Devin, about the community, so she wanted to know what she could do to help. And what we did was we purchased uh, 34 iPads and distributed them in here in county in our long-term care homes and hospitals and so on. And also now we have another program that's called Lonely No More. And this is a phone, a one once a week phone call to our seniors that are isolated. And now there's COVID funding coming over to that as well. So this is part of the caring, reaching out and caring communities. And I think, you know, I, I do believe entirely what you have said. When you're in small rural communities, we reach out and we help. 
And, uh, and that's, I think, what will get us all through in the long run is, is that caring and, and the compassion that we're all learning. Um, if we didn't have it before, we're learning it now. Chris, tell me what you're thinking about what's um, going to take you the next run in this. Yeah, no worries. I, I really think, and I, I think you've said it so well, and everyone said it so well, it's about being supportive and rural. And I think we're now having a, just an, just having an ear to the ground for that, having an ear to ground for that for patients, having an ear to ground that for your next door neighbor, having an ear to ground for, for my colleagues that I probably otherwise at times would just probably go, maybe that's nothing. Um, and, I, and I think the sense of patience that we need at this time, especially in rural areas where there is no COVID, there are just so many other stressors that are there. Uh, I think we do it well. I mean, the idea that you drop, you, you bring a, 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 a bag of sugar to your next to your neighbor, I think the same idea, right? I think it's just that time to be supportive uh, in the ways that we can, we can think of. And as you've mentioned here, the innovative ways you're doing that. I think, I think we have so much to learn from this. I think we're all learning a great deal, but it all comes back to that basic community, uh, I believe, and how we build resiliency. And I think we're all learning how to build re resiliency. And Amy, I hear your, what you're dealing with on a personal level as well. Um, you somehow have learned how to build some resiliency and you're obviously bringing it in a really positive manner. And it, it's so nice to hear. Uh, I think uh, all of you have brought to us a great deal of wisdom tonight. And um, I, I, I know one thing that's happening for all of you, I'm sure you're very sick of Zoom uh, and we're, <laughs> we're all getting over Zoomed, right? And, uh, but what I am finding um, that people are checking in. And while we weren't doing that before, but I find more and more people will be checking in. And if, and if I don't, maybe don't look so good on Zoom, maybe I look, I believe Mohammed, uh, Dr. Devin said to me one day, who is a pharmacist at Winchester that we work with at Gateway. He, he called me after a Zoom call and he said, uh, are you, are you okay, Gwen? And I said, well, no, actually I'm not. And I told him what was happening in my life. And uh, he said, I could see it in your eyes. So I don't know about you guys, but I really can't tell anything in your eyes. And you all look pretty good to me. I think you're all okay. But I think the one thing we have to really take from this is that we all just check in on each other and just say, how are you doing? And how are you feeling? Because I think as what I am learning is it ebbs and it flows, right? There are days when you don't feel so coveted and then there are other days and you're all dealing with uh, losses of people. You, Brittany, you'll be losing residents, you know, and they can't have a normal funeral. People can't, the community can't come together as normal. And you're, you're all dealing that with, with your patients and probably in your personal life too. You can't go to best friends are passing away. Chris, we talked a little bit, bit about the surgery delays. And uh, I have a friend recently diagnosed um, with breast cancer. And she's so afraid when we're hearing the zones going up here, is her surgery going to get bumped? And is she going to stay for several months knowing that she has this surgery she needs and unable to take. And th those loads are really hard. And those loads are all out there, right? Uh, grandparents not getting to see their grandchildren and so on. So how we build resiliency is, 
is the important piece and the gratitude. I think if we can just keep realizing the lovely things, whether it's your chickens, Chris, your apple trees, Amy, your bees, uh, Dr. Devon, and Brittany, your um, little ones that you are having off on maternity leave. If we can just have gratitude for all the wonderful things that are happening and keep that in front of us every day. And I, I think, I don't know, are we halfway through everyone or are we getting near the tail? Yeah, okay. Halfway with you, Chris, that's what you're thinking. Yeah, you're like a glass half full, glass half empty. And yeah, okay. Um, well, this has been absolutely a lovely. Is there any uh, comments before? I know we're just at the end of our time. I, I cannot thank you all enough. I think we should have these weekly meetings because this is a nice group. We don't have to have anyone else listening in. We can just go forward, you know. But I so appreciate your time. And I thank all of you for coming to listen to us tonight because I got lots out of this and I hope all of you did as well. So I thank you all and I will bid you adieu. Thanks. Good night. Thank you. Very therapeutic. Yes, thank Lovely. you very much, everyone. Thank you.